Well, good morning, everyone. Let me add my um, happy Mother's Day greetings to all you moms as well. We maybe don't express it as often as we should, but um, we appreciate the many hats that moms wear. Think about it. Um, moms wear a lot of different hats on a given day. You can wear the hat of, um, of the healer, kissing the boo-boos and putting the no-stick band-aids on the owies. You can wear the hat of a counselor when your teenage daughter or son doesn't make the varsity squad. You have the listening ears and the comforting, merciful heart. You can wear the hat of the business entrepreneur, helping them set up the little lemonade stand or sell those Girl Scout cookies. You um, look in your closet, you've got the hat of the taxi driver. You've got the uh, hat of the gourmet chef. Uh, you are um, involved in so many things. You're the troubleshooter. You are the, the, probably the most important at times, you are the peacemaker. You wear the hat of the, the peacemaker. Sometimes wondered if uh, at least our two boys out of our four kids ever made it to adulthood without uh, the peacemaker part that Lisa uh, played. And by the way, did you know that Mother's Day uh, originated... Um, out of a passionate call for peace. It's, it's fitting that moms wear the hat of a peacemaker. Julia Ward Howe, who wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic, in 1870, uh, after, of course, she saw the devastation of the American Civil War, in 1870, she wrote something called the Mother's Day Proclamation, which was basically a call for world peace. Um, Moms, we appreciate the way you delicately handle um, the conflicts in the home that so oftentimes happen. You become the peacemaker, and we appreciate that. Um, peace is a delicate matter. It can be so in the home, but it can also be in the church. And we're studying through the book of Acts. That's what we do here at Fellowship Bible Church. We typically take a book of the Bible and we just teach through it. And this morning, we're in Acts chapter 15. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Peace within the church. Disputes and dissensions in the church can be very, very ugly. And um, about 20 years after the church was founded in Acts chapter 2, here in Acts chapter 15, uh, the church was facing a very, very difficult time. In fact, uh, the dissension, the debate over one particular issue was, um, was so strong, it was so painful that uh, a conference had to be convened in Jerusalem to hammer this thing out. I think that Acts 15, what we read in Acts 15 is probably one of the most important chapters in the Bible, or at least in the life of the church, because without this this Jerusalem council, this Jerusalem conference that took place in Acts chapter 15. I don't know if we'd be here today. I mean, this was, this was crucial, the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. So, let me read the first five verses. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, that is, they came down from Judea to Antioch. They we're teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Got it? 
unless you become a part of Judaism, you don't have a hope in God's green earth that you'll ever make it to heaven. You cannot be saved. Well, verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. It says, therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and all the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But notice verse 5. But some of the, of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. It is necessary. This is a non-negotiable. There's no argument here. Look, people. They've got to follow the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. They've got to submit to uh, the rights of Judaism. If you ever hope to be a Christ follower, you have to do this. Obey the law of Moses. Now, the essence of this dispute uh, is very simply this question. How do you get to heaven? Right? That's the issue. Again, um, verse 1, these people from Jerusalem came to Antioch and they said, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The, the central issue is how do you get to heaven? What does a person have to do? And from their perspective, apart from embracing Judaism, there's no hope. There is no eternal hope apart from embracing Judaism. Now, Paul and Barnabas, it says, took great um, dispute with this, um, dissension, a great debate. The NIV says a sharp dispute um, was involved here in Antioch, and they battled it out to such an extent that um, we need to go up to Jerusalem. We need to call the apostles, the elders of the church, and we need to deal with this. So what's going on here? I mean, what's happening here? Well, very simply, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is under attack. It's, it's, it is under attack. And I think the church was hanging in the balance. How this answer is, how this question, how this issue is going to be dealt with is going to determine whether the, this early church, this fledgling church, maybe less than 20 years after it got started, is going to survive or not. How do you get to heaven? Now, let's recall the, the, the number one problem, the number one issue that is going on here in these early years of the beginning of the, the, the church of Jesus Christ. The number one issue was this, this movement out of the Old Testament era into the New Testament era. Coming out of Old Testament, the covenant of, of law, the law of Moses, into this New Covenant era of grace. Acts records the historical transition time from that Old Testament to that New Testament. Um, let's not forget that those early Christ followers, Peter, James, John, that early church, they, they were all Jews. 
they were steeped in Judaism. Cut them anywhere. They bled Judaism. Um, God's chosen people, the covenantal people of God. Um, you, you look at um, the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. You know, the central place that Christ followers met, the central place was the Jewish temple. 80, 80 something like 80 or 90% of the Old Testament quotations in the book of Acts are found in the first eight chapters. Why? What's going on here? Well, Peter, James, and John, the early believers, the followers of Jesus, um, believe strongly that if the Jewish people would, would turn to Jesus, the Messiah, change their thinking about what they had done, they had put him to death on the cross, but Peter would say in his sermons, but God raised him up. He's alive. He's sit, sitting at the right hand of the Father. We're witnesses of this. We saw it. We were there. And so Jewish people, if you want the messianic reign of Messiah in Jerusalem, as the Old Testament prophets had preached, if you want that to become a reality, then you better accept Jesus as your Messiah. And when you do, the t chapter 3, the times of refreshing will come. That, that messianic reign, God the Father will send his son Jesus and he will set up his kingdom on earth. This was a message of Judaism, of the Old Testament prophets. And this is what they were passionate about. This is what um, they were preaching in these early chapters. But then, then Acts chapter 10 happened. Remember? God taps Peter on the shoulder and he says, uh, there's a Roman centurion down the way. I want you to go there. Oh, no, I could never do that. A good Jewish boy, especially a Roman centurion. I mean, these the Romans, these are the people, they're not just Gentile dogs that we hate. They are the persecutors of our people. I would never do that. But through that vision, God sent Peter on his way. He obeyed. And he goes to Cornelius' home. Remember, he shares the good news of Jesus. And wonder of wonders, Cornelius and his whole family and all the friends that had gathered in Acts chapter 10, they put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. And the Spirit of God fell upon them. I mean, they, they, these these Gentiles were wildly, totally, eternally saved. And there was no getting around it. So Peter in chapter 11 goes back to Jerusalem and he's got to report this to um, his Jewish uh, comrades, uh, James and John and the other apostles. And he shares this story of what happened and how God poured out his spirit. The, the Gentile Cornelius and his family trusted Jesus and they got saved. And who was I, Peter says, that I could stand against what God was doing. And in chapter 11, verse 18, we read that after he, he spoke these things and they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God and they said, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. It's like, man, who, who would have thought? This is an amazing thing. In Acts chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas go on their first missionary journey, they're at Pisidian Antioch, and it says, the next Sabbath nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blasphemed. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and they said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, you Jews, first. 
since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. This was profound. This was an amazing thing. That God was actually offering Gentiles the free gift of eternal life. Something was going on here in the book of Acts as it's recorded. This was unheard of. It was always through Judaism that the access to the one eternal God was found. But now Gentiles are coming to faith. and They don't even have to be circumcised. They don't have to go through the rites of, of Judaism. It was a free gift being offered to Gentiles. This was unheard of. And you can understand how difficult it must have been for good Jewish people having been raised and steeped in Judaism all their life, you can, I'm sure, appreciate how difficult this was. And as more and more Gentiles became Christ followers, as more and more Gentiles were evangelized and were offered the free gift of eternal life, it was, it was more than what some Jewish people could bear, could handle. And they began to speak out against this. There was a growing division between these Gentile followers and Jewish followers, and it's like, well, Acts chapter 15, verse 1. They were hearing stuff happening uh, up in Antioch and 300 miles away, and they were saying, we, we got we to deal with this. Something's not right. And some people came to Antioch, and they said, look, let, let's, just be, let's just be real clear about this. Unless you're circumcised and follow Mosaic law, you cannot be saved. A major dispute, a major dissension was going on. Um, it wasn't the first time this was happening. It's recorded here in Acts 15. If you go back a couple of chapters in Acts chapter 11, um, Paul and Barnabas are sent to Jerusalem to deliver um, some financial aid. Agabus, a prophet, had come and was saying, there's going to be a famine coming, and we need to help uh, our, the fellow believers in, in Jerusalem. So offerings were taken, and they sent Paul and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem to deliver uh, that gift. And Paul reached out and met with the apostles, the Jewish apostles uh, in Jerusalem. In fact, it's recorded in, in uh, Galatians Chapter 2, I've got it here. Galatians chapter 2, let me read the first few verses here. Paul wrote in Galatians 2, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And I think what Paul is saying is he'd been saved about 14 years. After his conversion experience, about 14 years later, he goes up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. He took Titus along also. And verse 2 says, It was because of a revelation that I went up. Agabus had said there's going to be a, a famine and we need to take a gift to Jerusalem. So by, based on that revelation, Paul and Barnabas are sent to Jerusalem to deliver the, uh, the gift. And he said, I submitted to them the gospel, the good news which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation. You know, Peter, James, and John, those guys. For fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now, I don't think Paul is going up there to, to check out, see if his gospel is correct. I think he's just going up there and saying, I hope we're all together on this. 
uh, I've been saying and preaching this good news that I'm pretty sure you have been preaching too. The singular one thing to do to get to heaven, it's put your trust in Christ and Christ alone. But Paul was not sure maybe that was being declared because um, of the debate, of the dissension, of the tension that was running. Verse 3 says, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But he said, we did not yield to them, to, we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Um, this was the hot topic in the early church. What, what do Jewish believers and followers of Christ who are so steeped in Judaism, what do you do with the, Greek, with the Gentiles that are coming to faith? And not being told they had to become um, and, and submit under Judaism, that, that become the, the proselytes to the, to the one group of people, this chosen people of God. What, what do you do with this whole thing? Um, it was very difficult. And here again in Acts 15, maybe a year or two after what we just read in Galatians 2, about a year or two later, here it is again. It's happening all over. And it's like we've got to, we've got to deal with this thing. And I don't doubt there was some really vigorous, high-spirited debate that had gone on. And I don't doubt either that people like Paul and Barnabas, uh, there were um, accusations hurled against them like, Come on, you guys, this is, this is cheap grace. Man, you, you, th th this is nothing but easy believism. Come on. People have to be under submission to Mosaic teachings. Um, how are you going to handle it? Well, again, verse 3 and 4 of chapter 15, they go up to Jerusalem. I like what it says, by the way, in verse 3 and 4. So they're sent from the church at Antioch. They're passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. There's no giving up here on Paul and Barnabas. It was like, they're wrong, we're right, and as they're going up to Jerusalem, they're telling everybody, let me tell you what God is doing. He's given a free grace. The absolute free grace is being given to Gentiles, and they are preaching it all the way to Jerusalem. But to get to Jerusalem, and verse 5 says this debate is re-engaged again. Verse 5 says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees, and notice it says who had believed. And they stood up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. This was a tough issue. And there were even some, um, Acts chapter 6 verse 7 tells us that uh, many Jewish priests in Jerusalem were getting saved and following Jesus. Some even hear of the Pharisees. I mean, maybe it was Nicodemus or who, who knows who these people were. But they, they just said, we're very uncomfortable with this free grace stuff. Um, I don't know. I, I think we need to tell the Gentiles that they have to be circumcised. And they have to follow the rites of Judaism. They have to follow the Old Testament law of Moses. There's the debate. There's the dispute. There was the major dissension and issue in the early church that if it was not handled correctly, we would not be here today. Acts chapter 15, crucial what we're just reading. 
Well, we'll see in a couple of, uh, in the next two weeks, we'll talk more about Acts chapter 15. Uh, next week, we'll see how it was handled. Um, and you can read ahead. You, you can do that. But I want to stop for a moment and just talk about this whole issue. You know, dissensions and disagreements and conflicts in the church of Jesus Christ, they've gone on, obviously, since the beginning of the church 2,000 years ago. This is nothing new. Happens all the time, it seems like. I've shared before, I think, the story of the, the Christian man from uh, San Francisco who was walking along the Golden Gate Bridge one day and he saw a man about to take his own life, to jump the rail and kill himself, and he runs up to the man. And great compassion and great concern for this guy. All he could think of and all he could say to the man is, Stop, stop. Do you know that God loves you? The man backed away from the rail and hung his head and a tear came to his eye and very compassionately that other man said, are you, are you a religious man at all? And the guy said, I, well, I, I, I have been, I think I am. The guy asked him, what, so are you a Christian? Are you, are you Jewish? Are you Hindu? What are you? And the guy said, I'm a Christian. And the man said, I, I am too. Can we talk about this? What, what denomination are you? Protestant, Catholic? And he said, I'm a Protestant. He said, well, so, so am I. What, what denomination were you raised in? He said, well, I, I grew up, my parents took me to the Baptist church. He said, my friend, I'm a Baptist. <laughs> I grew up in the same tradition. This is, you realize this is a God thing. He said, Do you, were, were you raised in a Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, I was raised a, a, a Northern Baptist. He said, me too. This, this is amazing. He said, were you raised a northern conservative Baptist or a northern liberal Baptist? And he said, well, I, I, went, I, I was raised a, a northern conservative Baptist. The guy said, do you realize how miraculous this is? This is not a chance meeting. I was too. He then asked him, were you raised a northern conservative fundamentalist Baptist or a northern conservative reformed Baptist? guy thought for a moment. He said, well, it was a northern conservative fundamentalist Baptist. <coughs> Me too. The guy stepped back from the rail a little bit more, feeling a little bit more confident. And the guy asked him, were you raised northern conservative fundamental Baptist Great Lakes region or northern conservative fundamentalist Baptist Eastern region? He said, well, I went to Bible camp. Let me think for a moment. It was the Great Lakes region. So was I. My friend, do you see how closely we are here? Then he asked him, were you raised Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great, 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 Great Lakes Region Council 1912 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council 1879? And the guy said, well, it was 1912. And with that, the first guy looked back, frowned in his face, and he said, die, heretic, and he shoved him over the rail. Sooner or later, it seems as if Christians will engage in some type of debate. Give it long enough and we'll find something to disagree about, something, somehow. And it can be as silly as that story or it can be sometimes more, um, some more difficult issues. Like when, like when parents disagree on how to discipline a child and it causes conflict in the home. You're being too strict. You're being too merciful. It can be as difficult as a rift between two fellow believers over a business 
um, contract that went awry. It can be a disagreement that fellow believers have over a political ideology or some cultural or ethnic difference. Back a number of years ago, like in the late 1990s it was, I was in South Africa with Tim McManigal. Tim was our former missions pastor who's since retired and we were in South Africa meeting with um, some of the people that we work with there in South Africa. And on that particular trip, we spent some time with two young pastors who uh, had actually graduated from the seminary I had, the Dallas Theological Seminary. And it was a delight to meet these guys, um, and it was just a couple of years after the, that evil system of apartheid had ended. And you remember, if you, some of you might, are young and you might understand what apartheid was, it was that evil system that divided up South Africa into, into ethnic classes, four of them predominantly. There was the blacks, that, those were the tribal, like the Zulus. Uh, there were the Indians, people who were originally from India that had settled in India. That was a separate uh, racial class. Uh, there were the coloreds, mixed race uh, South Africans. And then, of course, there were the whites. Well, apartheid ended. Um, basically, totally in 1994, Tim and I were over there, and we were meeting with these two pastors who had pastored two separate churches. One was colored South African, another was a white South African, and they were saying, if the people of God can't come together and make a statement before the world of what unity, of what reconciliation looks like, then God help us. And they brought their two congregations together under the name of Christ, to be a witness to the world. Sadly, it didn't work. Because the diversities of people trumped the unity of the Spirit. And to this day, I don't know if those two churches ever got together. This was what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer before he was crucified. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. That they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you've sent me. Jesus cares about the unity of the body, his body. Jesus does not want division dissension in his church. Elsewhere, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, we read this, Paul wrote, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. What's that look like? What's a worthy walk? Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Notice he uses the word preserve it. Because the moment we trust Christ as our Savior, no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter what differences and diversities we have, the moment we trust Christ as our Savior, we all become members of the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a fact. And all Paul is praying is that we'll preserve that. Preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He wrote this to the Philippian church. He said, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
we have a message to proclaim to the world. And Paul is saying it doesn't look very good to that world when we're at odds with one another. So let's stand firm in one spirit and with one mind, and let's strive together for the sake of the gospel. A few verses later, just a few verses later in chapter 2, he put it this way. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. And a few verses after that in chapter 4, he actually confronts two women in the church, Yoda and Syntyche, and he says, you're at odds with one another. I beg you, be at harmony with one another. Be at harmony with one another. God wants his children to be in harmony, to live in unity with one another, the Spirit of Christ. Now, what, 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 what breaks that? What, what happens to bring about a disunity in the people of God? Well, James tells us pretty clearly. He asks the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And then he answers it. Is not that, that source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Is not the source your pleasures, your, your innermost desires, those sinful, selfish tendencies to want to um, control things, to want to be self-promoting, to want to be um, self-righteous, to want to be self-focused. It comes from that heart. And Paul in Galatians chapter 5 described it this way. The deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and then he says enmities and strife and jealousies and outbursts of anger and disputes and dissensions and factions. Ugh. He said it's the deeds of the flesh. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time here teaching at Fellowship Bible Church, and I said earlier, we teach systematically through the Scriptures. A few years ago, we were teaching through the book of Romans. Um, Romans chapter 6, 7 and 8, it talks about the flesh. You see, I'll just make this really short because, you know, you can't preach another whole sermon to explain one phrase, but uh, the, when it talks about the deeds of the flesh, Paul wrote about the flesh. There's some, the moment we trusted Christ as our personal Savior, something radically happened to us. We were transformed by the grace of God. And that spirit within us that was dead to sin was brought alive because of Christ. That spirit within us is going to live eternally because that spirit has been born again, has been regenerated. It is new. All things have passed away. All things have become new. But that regenerated, born again, heaven-bound internal me is encased in this body of sin. And there's a propensity within me yet, and it's called the flesh, that will focus on me and me only and stiff-arm God. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will, who will set me free from this body of sin, this, this, these tendencies, these propensities, this indwelling sin that so easily entangles me? We all have it. But it doesn't need to manifest itself. That's what Paul is saying. In fact, we went back to chapter 5, three verses earlier in verse 16. You know what Paul says in verse 16 of Galatians 5? If you walk by the Spirit... You will in no way carry out the desires of the flesh, the things we just read here. If we walk by the Spirit, because the moment we trust Christ, His Spirit dwells within us. And he goes on to say, you know what that Spirit looks like when we trust Him and give control of our life to Him? 
love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what happens when we're controlled by the Spirit of God. In other words, a believer in Jesus Christ who is walking by the Spirit, absolutely no way can have conflict in relationships in their life. Now, other people may conflict with you. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, as far as with you, be at peace with all men. And he says, you know how you do that? Get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit control your life. And the Spirit of God brings peace. Every believer in Jesus Christ, no way, impossible, to manifest the deeds of the flesh, enmities and strife and, and jealousy and outbursts of, of anger. It can't happen if we walk by the Spirit. Paul said this in Philippians chapter 2. He said, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard what another is more important than yourselves. And don't merely look out for your own personal interest. Look out for the interests of others. Put away that selfishness, that empty conceit. That's the flesh. That's the pleasures that wage war. What's the source of conflicts? It's that ugly old stuff that's still within us. And it doesn't have to show up. And it's when we operate in that sinful flesh that that's when these enmities and strife and the conflicts and the dissensions take place. When the, when the context of our home, in the context of the church, any relationships... Christ-like unity, Christ-like harmony. Is it characterizing your relationships? It can. It can because of the power of the Spirit of God within us. And if it's not, then it, it, it's probably worth us taking a little bit of time and our own personal quietness with the Lord to ask, why not, Lord? What's going on in my heart? Why is this conflict there? What, what is happening? What's... What is this sinful tendency in my life that's causing this? How, how, Lord, do I, Galatians 5, 26, keep in step with the Spirit so that love, joy, peace, patience, and all that good stuff is showing up in my life? Because Jesus prayed that we'd have unity. He prayed for that. And the good news is that that prayer can be answered because of the power of the indwelling Spirit. That is in with every believer in Jesus Christ. But let's go back to Acts chapter 15 and wrap this up. It says that in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas were engaged in dissension and debate over something of great importance. Was Paul and Barnabas walking in the flesh? No. Because you see, folks, there are some things worth fighting for. Debating, separating over even. And one of the most important things is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is this issue, how in the world does a sinner on their way to hell get to heaven? That's what was being debated here. And it was worth debating, it was worth the disputing over it was crucial. Clarity of the gospel. This is what Jude said, or Paul wrote to Jude. He said, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Contend earnestly for the faith. He said this in Titus chapter 1. He told him, Titus, appoint elders in every city 
who are holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that you will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced. He goes on and says they're entering whole households, disrupting families, because they were teaching things they should not. Folks, there are some things that we have to take a stand on. And see, this is what God's Word says. And top on the list is the veracity of the gospel, how one gets to heaven. In fact, so important with that, Paul wrote this in Galatians chapter 1. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he's to be accursed. And as we've said before, I'm saying it again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. There are things that need to be vigorously debated. I don't know if you've been following what's going on in the United Methodist Church in the last number of years. You probably have been. A whole new um, group uh, called the Global Methodist uh, has recently been started. The, 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 it's a conservative group. And there's this big debate of ordination or even marrying uh, in the LGBTQ community. Do we ordain homosexuals? Do we permit marriage? It was a major debate, a major rift that took place. And only about 10% so far of Methodist churches have split off from the United Methodist Church to go to the global Methodist church. Kind of sad that only less than 10% have done that over this issue. Some things are worth separating over. And the veracity of the gospel is one of them. And next week we'll see... That's exactly what took place almost 2,000 years ago at the council in Jerusalem. And praise God that it did. But as believers in Jesus Christ, how are we getting along with one another and showing the world how to disagree agreeably, how to love one another, and preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Back in 2014, Salim Munayer and Lisa Loden wrote a book that they entitled, Through My Enemy's Eyes. It's a very profound book because you see, Salim is a born-again evangelical Palestinian, and Lisa Loden is a born-again Messianic Jew, and they're friends. Their friends coming together, writing about the, the great opportunity that exists among the followers of Jesus Christ, whether you're Palestinian or whether you're Jewish, coming together in the name of Christ, the opportunity to show the world that it works, that the gospel of Jesus Christ works. Salim wrote this, it is our belief that Christ's death and resurrection is the foundation of reconciliation and that forgiveness and healing can only come through following his example, obeying his word. We need to know and demonstrate this together as Israeli and Palestinian, as Arab and Jew. The early church was almost destroyed because of the factions, of the, the, the disputes that took place. It was a worthy dispute. It was a worthy thing to discuss. It was worthy to have a Jerusalem council over. But we better be very careful when 
we move to the non-essentials, when we move to the preferences, when we have concerns and disputes among ourselves. Jesus said, I pray that there'll be unity so that the world will know that you've sent me. He said in John chapter 13, 35, the world will know you're my disciple if you have love for one another. Let's pray. And so, Father, thank you for your word and for this story that is historical. That tells us, um, as we'll see next week, the importance of making sure the gospel is clear. I pray, Lord, that we would also take inventory in our own lives. Um, if there's um, issues in our own heart, ought against somebody, something that uh, maybe has separated us, maybe listen to your Holy Spirit and draw us closer to you that we can draw closer to one another. But Father, I would be remiss if I did not say thank you and praise you for how 42 years in the life of this church you've been so graceful, grace, uh, gracious and merciful that there has been a, a unity of the spirit and a bond of peace um, decade after decade here. And um, we attribute it only to the fact that somehow in some way you've graciously allowed it. Thank you, Father, for what you've done in our midst. We're so grateful for your love for us. May we express it through the power of your Holy Spirit to one another that the world may know. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.